Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello there. Today I am very excited to be joined by another speaker who will be presenting at our Focus on the Body and the Singer event on Monday the 27th of June this year. She is a natural health therapist, clinical nutritionist and health coach holding degrees in nutritional medicine and counselling and psychotherapy. She is also an author with her second title due to be published this year and her third in the making. Stephanie Moore, welcome to the podcast. How are things with you? Hi, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here and I'm very good, thank you. Enjoying the sunshine. I love this time of year, so I'm very up. My sap is rising. I'm very up in spring. I love that. I don't have clothes for this time of year. Ah, okay. That's what I found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Either a jumper or a t-shirt, nothing in between. Yeah, I get, I get that. Yeah, you need layers at this time of year. Yeah. yeah. Um, your expertise is based on an amalgamation of the three areas of the training that we'd mentioned just then, um, mm-hmm. health, nutrition and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So can you give us an insight as to how you've linked those and what your job entails with the clients that you work with? Sure. I mean, I've been in this field in various capacities for over 30 years, starting in physical therapy. So very much into anatomy and physiology and how the body works. I was teaching anatomy and working as a physical therapist, doing hands-on manipulation with people with injuries and aches and pains and something called manual lymphatic drainage. So helping people who are sort of holding water and having immune issues. So very hands-on, loved that. So that was sort of in my 20s. And one of my early experiences was working with a woman, brand new person to me, new client. Um, she was quite overweight and she had um, some back issues. And I started doing this deep abdominal work on her and she burst into tears. Bearing in mind, I was probably 22, 23 years old, had no counseling or psychotherapy training at this point. And this woman was, I mean, just so overwhelmed with emotion. And it appeared, I was aware that I had sort of release something so my physical work abdominally and I was getting it to breathe because we do that to help physical muscular release what we call somatic release was going on where not only was there a tissue muscular release but there was a big emotional release and I was so struck by this but also felt so inadequately trained for it that I went from that physical work to training doing my master's in psychotherapy and counseling because I wanted to understand that connection. So I got my master's in psychology, but it didn't tell me any of that. (laughs) There was none of that. So I have skills in working with people as a talking therapist, but I was still working as a physical therapist or I was working as a psychotherapist. They were still, they were very separate disciplines. And then I was curious, I felt like there was still this missing link. So just found myself going down the tunnel of nutritional therapy and that just so fascinated me. And suddenly the connections were being made between physical health and mental well-being. This was early days, a long time ago. Did my nutritional medicine degree 
And it all started to make sense. Your muscles, aches and pains, inflammation is going to be affected by nutrition. And stress affects digestion, which affects nutrition, which affects recovery from exercise or ill health. So it all started coming together. And so over the last, I would say, 15, 18 years, I've been using both my knowledge of the physical body with the understanding of good nutrition to help a wide range of physiological and disease profiles and then getting more and more curious about brain health because we often think about the brain being a separate bit of the body and they don't really connect well they absolutely connect and over the last three years really the new discipline of neuronutrition or nutritional psychology has come about which is now an official uh, study of how we not just eat, how we live, how we manage our stress, how we sleep, and how all of this impacts our brain, and therefore, either our mental well being, so our depression, anxiety, relaxation, recovery kind of state in the brain, but also protection from neurological diseases long term, like Parkinson's and dementia. It's all just kind of accidentally merged together. And it's all a bit fabulous. And the big connecting factor here, which is really my area of specialty, is gut health. And your listeners may well be aware because it's kind of in the vernacular now commonly, but it wasn't when I was first studying this 12 years ago, how we have these colonies of microbes in the intestine, in the lower intestine particularly, about four pounds or two kilos in weight. That's a lot of microbes. So 100 trillion on average microbes living in the gut, mostly they're commensal, meaning they're working with us to help us. And it is now understood that these microbes hugely affected by our diet, every meal will either heal them or harm them. They are affecting our brain health, our immune health, our ability to recover from illness, inflammation in our body, our energy production, our body fat percentage, I mean, so much, our food cravings, whether we're hungry, whether we're full, they are signalers and they are regulators throughout the entire body. And the exciting thing is we can do so much to improve their function, their range, and that's done mostly through food. So, yeah, and that ties up everything within the body. So that's kind of where I've got to. Mm. And it seems to have this biopsychosocial mm. relevance, doesn't it? What nice, you do, yeah. really planting everything together. Mm-hmm. Um But I have, before coming on to chat with you, have a little bit of underlying guilt because (laughs) about two hours ago, I was about mouth deep into like a a, a homemade English breakfast brunch, you know, sausage and bacon and all, you know, all of it chomping down. And then I was thinking, Alexa, you're about to speak to a nutritionist. You're harming your gut probably. (laughs) So I thought, actually, where are the lines between what's a myth what's truth Mm. how much fat do we need how you know what is grease going to do to us um Mm -hmm. and then thinking about you know the effects vocally as well um so yeah have you got any myths that you feel we need busting in our world about diet and balance of that there are so many and the difficult thing is and it's really frustrating for an audience to hear this it's not black and white (laughs) everybody's needs nutritionally are going to be a bit different and one's um, robustness about how much abuse we can throw at the body or not is affected by many, many things. So human nutrition is a very gray amalgus area. 
And people want absolutes. They want to say, this is good and this is bad. And I do have a few of those, which I can go into. There are a few that I just say, just don't go there. Don't have that. And a few things are like, yeah, you should be having that every day. But mostly it's like a bit flexible. But coming back to your English breakfast hit, I think what most people are surprised at with my philosophy, my clinical recommendations and my personal way of being is that I'm actually quite pro-fat and I would much rather you were having bacon, eggs, sausage, uh, mushrooms, all that sort of typical fry up than croissant, toast and jam, um, muesli, granola, stroke, all of that kind of stuff. And that surprises a lot of people. Guilt and gone. <laughs> guilt gone. Now, then, then you could get into the details of, well, what was the quality of the sausage and the bacon? There's good and there's bad. There's, you know, highly processed, nasty pink stuff. And then the happy animal that's had a good life stuff. There's all of that. There's what you cook it in. This is one myth that I bang on about all the time. And I really can't stress enough the importance of understanding this. But again, it can get the details can become a bit overwhelming. There are good fats and there are bad fats. There are fats that heal, profoundly heal, particularly the brain, which is made up of a lot of fat, hormones made up of a lot of fat. So good fat is essential. Good fat does a lot of mending, healing, satisfying, nourishing, balancing. But then there are bad fats that are profoundly bad. And they are the fats that are often touted as being healthy, heart healthy. So your sunflower oil, your rapeseed oil, your soy oil, ubiquitous everywhere. Soy oil is so nasty. Uh, corn oil, vegetable oil, whatever that might be, because how much oil is in a vegetable? Well, so it's just a byproduct of other stuff that's generally pretty nasty. And the common factor about these sort of standard cooking oils that I dislike so much is that they have gone through a high amount of processing and has rendered these oils, these cooking oils, incredibly inflammatory. I, I've already used that term quite a bit. It kind of means the body's on fire inside. There's damage happening. And when the body is inflamed, we get pain, we get disease, we get malfunction. So if the inflammatory cooking oils, high in omega-6, which is a type of fat that triggers inflammation within the body, I get people to be very judicious about avoiding. So if you're having your eggs and your bacon and your sausage, um, I would, and again, this is a shocker for many people, recommend cooking in butter or very good quality olive oil, avocado oil, which is more expensive, harder to come by, but still a good oil, or very high heat cooking would be coconut oil or animal fat, good quality animal fat, like a good bit of lard. This is old fashioned. This isn't new. This is going back to what was happening food-wise before we started messing around and hyper-processing our food. So there is a, actually a lot of evidence around this way of eating because it's what we've done through our kind of ancestral history. And it's only really in the last 50, 70 years that we've massively messed up our food chain because of what we do to it, rendering what should be okay food pretty nasty. So I have a <clears throat> very general philosophy every time we eat fat, fiber, and protein. And within that, the good fats. And I make that very evident. And we can talk about that more now, or, or certainly during my talk in June, what the good fats are, how to prioritize them. Protein, not too much, but certainly not too little. And it is generally the main component of a meal that tends to be missing or lacking. And that's predominantly animal protein. If you eat animal, 
uh, here speaks uh, ex-vegan. So I'm with you vegans and vegetarians out there, but very few people thrive on a vegan diet, <laughs> bearing in mind that a Diet Coke and a bag of chips is <laughs> vegan. Um, so you have to work hard to be a healthy vegan is what I'm saying, but it's possible. But getting that protein element in is important. And then coming full circle back to these microbes that live in our digestive system that are the programmers of our health. I mean, and profoundly so. They are actually affecting our genetics, our DNA. They feed on fiber. That's their fuel. And if you don't feed them, they die. And we would hope to find in a healthy individual around a thousand different types of microbes living in the gut. That includes viruses and bacteria and things called archaea and parasites. All can be beneficial. They need to be fed and they need to be fed fiber. That's predominantly your plant foods. So you want lots of fiber rich foods, good amount of protein, good amount of fat at every meal. And then if you throw in a bit of naughtiness, whatever we might deem naughty, your body's going to be fine because you've taken care of the important stuff. So there's definitely wiggle room. I'm not an absolutist. What is interesting, I see it with my clients all the time, and I've seen it <clears throat> with my husband. If anyone of you knows Stefan Rettenbacker, you'll know this is quite something. Um, it, the palate changes, the drive to eat the highly processed, highly sugary, nasty-ish food that we think we love. If you avoid it or change how your body is working over a period of time, usually at least three months, then the drive to have it goes. Or if in your mind you're still like, oh, yeah, but I love Kit Kats. And then you have a Kit Kat and you're like, oh, actually, I don't love them anymore. So your body does change what it wants. You've got to set up the environment inside. That is not low fat. That is not low calorie. Uh, and it is whole food with that balance, as I say, of good fat fiber protein. Not that complicated, but it, it's the convenience foods that get the better of people and particularly performers, busy people having the accessibility or the time to eat a largely whole food diet, which is what I would promote, gets tricky. So I do understand mm -hmm. that. Mm. And moving into that a little bit in terms of the singer and what they're going to experience, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on these different scenarios in terms of taking the dancer, for example, who may have an injury um, and they're in training um, for musical theatre performance. What would help them in their consideration for their diet in terms of helping injury to heal or prevent injury? Is there something staple in their diet they might want to consider? Probably protein, and it might be the thing that's lacking, and um, particularly collagen and glycine, which is uh, protein is made up of things called amino acids, and there are different balances of amino acids from different proteins. So there's protein in beans and lentils, for example, virtually no glycine, meat, eggs, fish, so animal protein, lots of glycine. Glycine is a real mender. There are various other amino acids too. What is now available, which is fairly new to market, are uh, collagen powders, bone broth powders, bone broth. So this is long, slow cooked animal bones. And you there is nothing to replicate this in the plant world. So as a vegetarian or vegan, this gets trickier. But to provide your ligaments, tendons, muscles with the core nutrients to facilitate healing, you have to put those core ingredients in. And those that, that soft tissue requires a lot of collagen 
It therefore requires a lot of vitamin C. So that's where your vegetables and your fruits come into. And vitamin C activates the collagen to help heal. There are other elements too, something like zinc, really important for healing. Um, and that's in eggs, that's in shellfish, that's in pumpkin seeds. So it's a wide range of foods. But what is also important, and this is an area that I've been fascinated by for 15 or so years, is if you don't eat for a while, what I call intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, this is not starvation. This is not doing stupid stuff, not eating for five days. But if you allow some windows of time where you're not eating, so eat well and then stop for maybe up to 16 hours, everyone's a bit individual, post 12 hours of no food, bearing in mind you could sleep through most of that if you wanted to, the body goes into a healing response, which it can't do while you're digesting. Digesting takes hours and it takes a ton of energy and a lot of concentrated nutrients going into the process of digestion. So then if you stop eating for a period of time, the digestion gets finished, taken care of, and then your body goes into repair mode. So for most people, that's after 12 hours of no food. And so then if you allow just a couple more hours post the 12 hours of no food, your recovery rate can improve massively. Inflammation goes down, human growth hormone goes up. So now you've got the bare bones, the tools to fix whatever the problem might be, be it a broken bone, inflammation in a joint, whatever. And muscle repair and muscle growth happens in that latter part of a, a time-restricted eating window. So eating well when you're eating, and then instead of grazing and picking and having multiple meals a day over a long eating window, you shorten your eating window and allow that fasting window. That's one of the best ways to repair while getting in when you are eating appropriate protein, good quality protein. Mm. And for that musical theatre performer, then thinking about digestion and how long it takes, if they've got that little gap between shows, they've had their matinee, they're waiting for their evening show, mm -hmm. and they've got maybe two hours before mm -hmm. they need to be back at their kind of dressing room waiting for um, curtain up. What can they be doing? Is there something that should they fast in that time? Do you think should they I know that everyone's going to be individual, but mm. should they snack? Should they have a meal? What would you suggest there? It's probably not appropriate to have a meal. It's going to be too heavy. Bearing in mind, we, we chew our food, we swallow our food, and it sits in the stomach, which is just beneath the diaphragm, directly beneath the diaphragm, for about three hours, possibly five if it's been a big heavy meal. You do not want a stomach full of food when you're leaping about trying to sing, trying to take deep breaths. Yeah. So no, not a big meal. You might want to have a, an appropriately sized, like a proper meal as opposed to light fluffy breakfast food pre-matinee and then give it at least two or three hours before matinee starts. And then in that little gap, tricky, Think nutrient dense, meaning anything you do eat needs to count. It's got to be putting in something useful, not just not just energy. Um, now, again, you're right. This is very individual. So it, it is appropriate with such a high energy output with a matinee and a, and a second performance. Lots of energy going out. You want some energy going in as far as you, you might want your carbohydrates. But that's what body fat is for as well. Body fat is there to provide energy when we're not eating. And most people, even very slim people, have perfectly adequate body fat to get them through two shows. 
You just have to be what we call fat adapted. Your body needs to know how to access that body fat. What you need in between is a top up of nutrients. So vitamins and minerals and some amino acids. So small amounts of food that count. I would suggest various types of food. So just a small amount so it's not sitting heavy in your system. A handful and probably a handful is enough of mixed nuts and seeds ideally not roasted and salted but hey you know it's better than packet of crisps frankly you're going to get a lot more from a handful of nuts even if they're roasted and salted uh, but ideally raw and a whole range so they all have different nutrient qualities so your pecans and your cashews and cashews got quite a lot of carbs so that will give you energy too pecans cashews walnuts great brazils are great so you're getting a wide range pumpkin seeds phenomenal so have a nice mix so that would be good. Got to chew them well. They're dried. Nuts and seeds have been dried before they're put in bags and sold in, uh, in shops. So you've got to really chew them well to help your body break them down. Again, coming back to bone broth, I am a huge fan. It's such a healer of the body and it's tasty. If you like sort of salty, savory, umami flavors, so you can buy them ready-made or dirt cheap to make it. It just takes a long time to slow cook bones. And then you can have a flask of a really nice chickeny, so like a soup, like a thin soup, um, or make an actual soup with some bone broth, chicken broth, beef broth, and be sipping that because soup's light. So soup's easy. Soup doesn't stay in the stomach for very long. So soup in a flask is a great thing to take. You could buy a fresh one and heat that up and take it. Or if you've got facilities, heat it um, in between your shows. Or as I say, uh, make it, heat it, take it with you in a flask. That's a lovely thing to do. And I'm a huge fan of eggs. Now, some people are intolerant, have sensitivities to them, not very commonly. So obviously that doesn't apply, but if assuming you feel okay when you eat eggs, you have lovely quality protein, you have phenomenal amount of fats, you have a ton of nutrients for your brain. So you could do some hard boiled eggs with a little bit of salad, uh, something like that, or literally just some eggs, even like, you know, takeout places sell them now, don't they? The plastic cups with hard boiled eggs and a, a wilted leaf of spinach. Yeah. It looks really grim, but- um, And it's like six pound 50. And they're about six pound 50. So you could take two or three eggs, you could um, sort of chop them up and, and put good quality olive oil. I'm a huge fan of olive oil and make a little sort of eggy salad in a Tupperware, take it with you. Now, for some people that might feel such a faff too far, such an additional thing to have to think about, but it doesn't have to be complicated. Hard boiling eggs is not a big deal. Chopping them up, mixing them up with some olives or some hummus or something and popping it in a little pot. It's about getting over that initial hurdle of the idea of it's just one more thing to do and I haven't got the brain space to do it. I haven't got the bandwidth, but do it once or twice. You realize how quick and easy it is because it's going to make that second performance so much easier. It's probably going to mean you sleep better afterwards. You recover better. Again, this is not about just loading up with fuel to give you energy to get through the second show. This is about ensuring that there are enough core nutrients in your body to drive that performance to its optimal level without depleting your body so much that you're just ultimately exhausted after a run of shows. So yeah, quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. I don't care about how much people eat. Eat till you're comfortably full, but it's about the quality of your food that counts. Don't mm -hmm. waste food by having just uh, poorly nourishing, highly processed stuff that's just going to cause problems and not actually give you anything in return. Mm. And speaking of processed foods, 
I guess something that the gigging singer might come up against is once they're done with their set, they've packed everything away, they're in the van home. Mm-hmm. It's really tempting to kind of mm-hmm. stop off at the the petrol garage and pick up a what you think is going to be a tasty processed sausage roll, but really is not going to do you any good or go through a drive through uh, yeah. fast food chain. Um, so what could they pack? Is it the same sort of thing, having something mm-hmm. in the trunk where you can just pick it out and have something a little bit more quality as you described. Yeah. And I think particularly that very late night eating, which I discourage as much as possible because it affects quality of sleep. Now, the younger you are, the more flexibility you've got around that as you age, sleep is more and more affected by factors like light exposure, when you last ate, things like that. But still it will impair quality of sleep. And for recovery, that's massive. Getting your sleep right is massive. And again, we can touch on that. But I would probably encourage the smallest amount possible if you really have to have something. And sometimes I think it's habit that is the idea, like you say, of having something like you deserve it. You've put all this energy out. You're tired. You just want something to keep you going. The idea of something tasty and salty or crunchy, these things have an addictive quality. So the idea of it is appealing. I would suggest, yes, a bag of nuts, something like that, great, but maybe won't won't cut it. So possibly one of the better qualities, and the range is huge, a, a sort of, mm, I, I, I hesitate to call them a health bar because most of them are terrible, but a kind of a you know protein bar or a muesli bar or something like that. So at least it's got something useful in, you can stick it in your gig bag nice and easily and um, have that to just curb the appetite without having eaten so much that it's sitting heavy when you're going to be home and trying to go Mm -hmm. to sleep. Ultimately, though, and again, I've seen it with Stefan, um, particularly when he's doing lots of late gigs, six or six gigs, finishing at two in the morning, that the habit of having a drink with his mates, with the band mates, with, with everybody there and having some food was a lovely social thing. And I get that. But he learned over the years just just to uh, just to not eat and would feel so much better not doing that. And then you're going to wake up ravenous, but fine, that's the time to eat. Waking up in the morning and refueling as opposed to doing it late at night. If the rest of the band are eating big old greasy kebab, the smell of that, that's that's tough. That's going to be a hard thing to avoid. Um, so then it's about having st- sort of mental strategies around, do I really want to do this? Why do I want to do this? Oh, I remember it makes me feel terrible when I wake up the next day. Oh, I know it really affects my sleep. And rationalizing your choices around it. If you really want it, have it. Have the least possible and, yeah, try and find mm. better options. Tricky mm. one. It's, it is a tricky one. Yeah, I guess it's also um, potentially about looking at a little bit further ahead and thinking, what have I got to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Is is there another show? Then maybe I don't need that loaded kebab. Um, exactly. It's not going to do anything. But if you have a free day, you have no expectations that you and no tick boxes that you have to mm-hmm. kind of see through. Maybe then it's okay to have those that extra kebab on the cheeky sly. <laughs> On the cheeky sly. And, and again, if, if it's not too often, I, I really don't think it's a problem. It's about, as I say, acknowledging how you feel afterwards. And if actually you feel fine and it doesn't completely wipe out your day the next day, even if you haven't got much to do, then your body's probably coping with it okay. What you could also do if you really sort of want to knuckle down into some strategies is 
And this is true. I do this a lot with the singers I work with who suffer with reflux, which is such a common problem. Uh, so some kind of heartburn or GERD or acid reflux depends on what sort of term you, you know, but it's where your stomach acid isn't being well managed and it can cause a lot of problems with your vocal cords and your range, therefore. So to improve digestion and therefore both of you've got acid reflux problems, but also to just help digest your food and get a better night's sleep is to use some digestive enzymes, which are enzymes are things that break down our food. We make them in the stomach, in the pancreas, in the gallbladder, and they, they break the food down from being big bits of food to small bits of food that then allows the food to be processed better and absorption happens better. And the later in the day or, and or the more tired we are, the less well we do that natural processing and the making of the enzymes to digest and absorb our food. So there are many on the market and I would actually suggest one get some advice on this. You don't just want to be randomly popping pills, but just something to bear in mind, you can get digestive enzymes, which come in a capsule. So if I were finishing a gig at two or three in the morning and just needed some food and I got my bag of chips and my burger, I would absolutely take one or two, depending on your physical size, size of the meal, digestive enzymes, because that's going to just take some of the pressure out of the system when your body's already going to be struggling a little bit. If you don't want to do that, this is more difficult from a practical point of view, but it, it, it's a really, really nice um, digestive hack is to have a little shot of apple cider vinegar, raw apple cider vinegar or unpasteurized apple cider vinegar. It tends to say it contains the mother on the label, meaning it's got live microbes in. And that really expedites the digestive process, triggers your own enzyme production, helps with inflammation in the gut, helps with acid management often. And um, one can have a shot of that. You never have it neat. You have a little shot, about a tablespoon in some water. Um, but the practicalities of that are tricky if you're on the road. So that might not work, but certainly something you can do when you get home. Mm. Or have a little hip flask. <laughs> have a little hip flask. I like your thinking. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Very good. You'll be a little bit shocked when someone yes, passes it around. Yes. And so I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a bit of whiskey. Oh, no, that's not whiskey. Yes, it's a lovely anti-inflammatory digestive aid, apple cider vinegar. And you can use it as a culinary vinegar. And then prior to a meal, particularly a big meal, that, that shot in water can be lovely. Yeah. Mm. And for the vocal coach who may be back to back with students, they have to run from one studio to the next or they just have a really busy day. Um, and that person who might say, oh, I've just got a five minutes to shove in a sandwich. <laughs> what is that shoving in going to do to us? What's that fast, like on the run eating going to do to our bodies? It's such a good question. And it is an area that is so underappreciated. Smelling anticipating just seeing food begins a phenomenally complex complex feedback loop of brain mouth saliva stomach intestine all talking to each other preparing for the process of eating food mm -hmm. never mind once you start actually eating and you're chewing and then the taste buds are sensing the food and it's telling the brain what's going on and then the brain's telling the stomach to activate appropriate enzymes and acids to break that food down this takes time and this wolfing down of food barely chewing not noticing because you're driving or you're phoning or you're on the computer so this distracted eating, be it in front of the telly even, which I get all my patients not to do as much as possible, means that the feedback loop 
the preparations and the processing of your food at best are 50% and often less. That's often a trigger for acid reflux, but also bloating, which is a really uncomfortable and unpleasant experience and not what you want to be feeling if you've got to get into your gig outfit, you know, doing a performance of any kind, you know, that distended belly is horrible. Poorly digested food will cause bloating. So you won't absorb the nutrients. You'll feel uncomfortable. You'll probably feel really tired shortly after eating it. Um, and you're not going to get the nourishment from it that you should. But also your brain hasn't really clocked that you've eaten because you haven't set up that information going backwards and forwards. So the likelihood that you will be hungry too quickly, inappropriately, overeat again. Uh, yeah, it's it really messes with your natural signaling. So again, this takes time and a bit of effort. I generally get most of my patients, performers or singers or anybody else, to be thinking about long-term two meals a day. It's all we need. We don't need to be eating multiple meals a day. It's exhausting for the body. It drains us of energy. It damages our intestine. It just messes with our bodies. It is not at all how our systems are designed to act. Think about ancestrally living off the land. We were lucky if we had one meal a day. So we want that recovery time. We want the body to be in a non-digestive state as often as possible. So if you've got a busy day, you work out, where your two meals are going to be, it could be if you've got a later loaded day, you have a really good brunch or breakfast, but proper meal, knife and fork, your eggs, your bacon, your sausage, your porridge, your this, your that, and uh, hearty, a hearty, hearty, proper meal that will then sustain you ideally for five or six hours. Within that period of time, if you haven't got any time to eat a proper meal again, and you shouldn't really need to, you might get a little bit hungry, small handful of nuts, you eat and chew well, and then you get through end of day work, you can sit down and have another proper meal again. And that's, that's plenty. So that then takes some pressure out of the system, because once your body has adapted to do that, one, you're burning fat in, in between, which is a healthy state to be in, it's a sustained state to be in. So you're not getting hypers and hypos of energy and blood sugar. So your brain energy is very constant. Your concentration is good. Lots of healing going on in between. And then you're hungry when you sit down and have your second meal. So you really appreciate it. And your body really wants it. And your body does appropriate things with the food because your body needs food at that point. So many people eat when they're not hungry. They eat because they think they should, or they're worried they're going to run out of energy or fuel later on during the performance. So they panic. Body fat is there for a reason. And when the body knows how to burn body fat, that sustained, safe energy, so you're not getting hypoglybitchy, you're not getting all panicky, you're not getting all shaky and lightheaded and crabby, is a lovely and very liberating feeling. And then you're in control of what you eat when. And that's a game changer. So it's possible, but it takes a bit of time. Mm. And you, you, you've, got to, you've got to really focus on the quality of your food then to have enough fuel to keep you going for those, the, those longer periods. Mm. And since watching um, a lovely webinar that you did on managing reflux for the BAS uh, membership, mm -hmm. um, my meals now in the evening always consist of having at least four candles on, unscented, um, ah. but always candles um, because of helping it feel relaxed. Nice. Um, so, yeah, it's always, always a romantic one. <laughs> 
that's so nice. That's lovely. And uh, because of the neural stimulation, our eyes are, are hanging, hanging down bits of our brain. Eyes are part of your brain. And even our skin, actually. Our eyes and our skin are sensing light all the time. And so come the evening when we want to be relaxed and we're turning off the stress, the doing hormones, allowing the digestive system to kick in, preparing the body for good sleep. You want dimmer lights, calmer atmosphere, telling the body, mimicking the idea that the sun is going down and therefore it is appropriate that the body is slowing up energetically, focusing on rest and repair. And yeah, candlelight, perfect. We would have been sitting around fires. So, so it's a good thing to do. I'm going to show my husband this segment because he will put the big light on in the living room. And I'm like, can we have this lamp on, please? It's nice and warm. So there's nothing wrong with this big light. I'm like, Peter, this is <laughs> making me feel <laughs> a certain way. <laughs> yes, Peter, because the angle of the light, so overhead light mimics and this might sound ridiculous to some people listening, but this is so well researched that the angle of the light as it hits the back of your eye determines where the sun would be in the sky. So a ceiling light indicates middle of the day, sun is up. And then that gives completely different information to wall lights, low light, low level lighting, which is sun's gone down. So that that's soothing. I do think women are probably more sensitive to this than men. Um, Steph and I battle with it quite a lot because he doesn't think it just flips on that light because he doesn't seem to have that same reaction. I find it quite abusive, actually, not from him, from having that sharp harsh light coming in at night yeah. I mean I'm in my mid-50s now I um, because sleep changes as you get older I'm definitely more sensitive to that overhead light but I think it's true for everybody mm. um same with screen lights of course from computers and phones and HDTVs there's a spectrum of light called blue spectrum light which is the same as sunlight and again that's very stimulating to the back of the eye and the brain and so you want to be reducing exposure at least an hour before bed mm. Thank you. Back up. That's all I needed. Totally there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you've recently undertaken training in nutritional neuroscience, which mm -hmm. sounds so interesting. So can you explain to us a little, it sounds huge, but can you explain to us a little bit about that and how it's fueled your new book title, which is uh, Eat Your Brain Happy? <laughs> yes. So this, as I say, I said in the beginning, it really ties up all these different areas. This is predominantly but not exclusively looking at how what we eat affects the gut bacteria and then how the gut bacteria affect how our brain works so there is an amazing nerve and this is so important for singers called the vagus nerve which goes from the back of the brain stem around your throat your lungs your heart and your intestine and it's it's this by communication system of brain to gut, gut to brain, um, affects your breathing, your diaphragmatic breathing, all of that stuff sending different messages around the body. And so uh, neuronutrition neuro or nutritional psychology is about how do we improve how the brain works by improving your gut microbiome and how your gut microbiome, these, these gut bugs, talk to the brain via the vagus nerve. So there are conditions like depression and anxiety, more serious in some ways, uh, conditions like uh, schizophrenia even, bipolar, 
autism, attention deficit, all of which can be helped, not necessarily cured, but helped, and in some cases really, really helped, through improving gut microbiome, nutritional uh, sensing, and how it affects what the brain does. So there's the mental health side of that, and then there's the prevention, and in some cases treatment of neurological diseases, which, by the way, are starting in our 30s, 40s and 50s, and then in our 70s and 80s are being expressed as Parkinson's, dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy bodies, things like that. So what I have been studying is how the brain repair, how the brain gets damaged, how the brain can be repaired, what those mechanisms are, and what we need to be doing nutritionally, sleep, exercise, lifestyle, to get the brain's recovery systems working best. And that's largely to do with what your gut microbiome are doing. And again, it's amazing because it makes it accessible. Feed your gut microbes what they like, give them a rest, do a bit of fasting, get lots of fiber in to feed them, get some fermented foods to boost them. And then suddenly how your brain is working changes. And that's really incredible and is measurable. So that's exciting. And um, the, the book, therefore, will give some guidance on ways to address specific conditions, be it migraine, be it depression, anxiety. Um, if you've got a sort of family history of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, you might be more at risk. So what to do as a preventative set of actions. So, yeah, it's very cool. It's a very, very exciting new area. Mm. And when might that be published? <laughs> well, uh, plan was last year, <laughs> and then and then life happened. So I uh, am trying to set aside uh, quite a bit of this summer to get it finished. I'm actually talking to a publisher on Friday about it because they might take it on. Um, because I also want to update my previous book, which is called "Why Eating Less and Exercising More Makes You Fat." I want to update that um, and then and then launch them together. So. I would hope, but certainly by this time next year. Amazing. We'll keep our we'll keep our eye yeah. out. Yeah, yes. definitely. Um, I'm so excited to kind of have you on um, the Bast Focus on Day. I, I can't wait to see you there. And uh, how, what we, can we expect from you on that day? More about what we've spoken about today. What you're going to elaborate on? So my talk on the 27th is going to be going into more detail about much of what I was talking about earlier today about the kinds of microbes that live in the gut, what they're doing, how we can support them, and crucially, the latest science showing how the good bacteria, if they're happy, will affect all the other systems in the body, from how your brain works, to your energy levels, to your quality of sleep, to your repair mechanisms, and to how your digestive system feels. Are you bloated? Are you sluggish? Are you getting reflux? Are you getting bowel problems? So some theory, but also lots of practical things that you can be doing day to day to supercharge what we talk about as your second brain, the gut microbiome, and how it will have a positive influence on many, many systems in the body, not least brain function and your mood. So that's what we'll be covering. Sounds incredible. Mm -hmm. um, what resources would you recommend for us to check out to understand this a little bit further or to check out what that means to us individually? Oh, my goodness. Um, that is a good question. And uh, well, there's basic information on my website, which is health-in-hand.co.uk. So my website is there. And then I think anything that is based around sort of Mediterranean or whole food diet, lots of information about sleep out there at the moment, look up some sleep hygiene, that's important. Um, vagus nerve, huge, 
it affects everything in our bodies and how we recover. So you can Google vagus nerve exercises. If we've got time, I'll take you through some vagal toning exercises where you can get your vagus nerve working better. So that's an interesting area to look into, to be doing certain breathing patterns and very simple exercises to support your vagus vagal tone, which then supports your digestion and your mental and physical recovery. So that's an interesting area to dig into. It's a minefield, which is why I'm being sort of vague here, because there's so much misinformation. And as as a professional in this field, I have to be so on my toes to discern what's absolute rubbish, what is potentially true, but not yet proven, and what is pretty well scientifically proven to be the case. And there's so much noise and just so much confusing information and contradictory information that when you start looking things up, I think it can just lead you to be even more confused. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant about where to send people. Uh, but yes, have uh, decide what, which area you want to focus on. And if, if it's the gut microbiome, I would encourage anybody to start learning about the importance of the gut microbiome and how fascinating it is and how our modern lives are really ruining it from chlorine in our water to our medications to alcohol. I'm not anti-alcohol, by the way, um, but one has to be a little careful. Um, so yes, to the importance of, of really looking after your gut microbes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, and where can people get in touch with you if they have any questions or want to know uh, anything specific? If they go to my website, www.health-in-hand.co.uk, there is a, a, a contact uh, page there, um, or I can be reached on email, which is stephanie at healthinhand.co.uk. Amazing. And if you're itching to join us on our Focus On event on the 27th of June 2022, and you're listening before the said date, then there is still time to get your ticket. So check out the show notes for a link to reserve your seat or head over to www.basstraining.com forward slash event and get your seat booked there. And Stephanie, we look forward to seeing you at the event. I look forward to doing it. Good to see you. And thank you. It's been great. Dear fellow Curious Voice Nerd, have you got your ticket to our next event yet? Well, head over to www.basstraining.com forward slash store and we'll save you a seat. That's www.bastraining.com forward slash store. Don't worry, you haven't totally missed out on our past events. A recording is waiting for you there too. You probably want to sign up to our mailing list though, just to make sure you never miss another cordial invitation. So follow the link in our podcast description to join. See you at the next one.